discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It is Mexi. And today we have something different planned. My fiance, Jacob, who is a Jewish anti Zionist activist here in Toronto and a member of Independent Jewish Voices Canada, is taking over control of VV. So you will hear him interviewing Cheryl Nestle, who is on the executive committee of IJV Canada and has been doing Palestinian solidarity work for decades. Cheryl lived in Israel for 15 years and was very involved with the Israeli left, but had to leave when she just frankly couldn't stand it anymore. And the conversation that Jacob and Cheryl have is, I think, incredibly important, especially given everything that's going on right now and how often the charge of anti-Semitism is weaponized to legitimize and apologize for colonial violence and ethnic cleansing. They talk about the kind of propaganda fed to Jewish people through various institutions, the fallacies of liberal Zionism, and much more. They've suggested various readings and films, which we've included in the show. Show notes. I've also included in the show notes uh, a video of Suzanne Weiss, who is an incredible Holocaust survivor and Palestinian solidarity activist here in Toronto, who spoke at the Al Quds rally last year, emphasizing that never again means never again for anyone. She consistently, bravely speaks on how the trauma that she and so many others suffered during the Holocaust, uh, including people that are close to both Jacob and Cheryl should in no way ever be used to justify committing unspeakable traumatic violence on another group of people. Like that just should not be happening. Um, one book that Jacob actually read to me, I have chronic illness. So after work, when I, when I can't really look at screen, sometimes he will read to me. Uh, but he, he read this fantastic book. It's Abram Leone's The Jewish Question, A Marxist Interpretation, where he details the history of anti-Semitism and how it connects with class politics. It's really fascinating, fantastic, and important work. Of course, here at VV, we stand firmly against anti-Semitism. We've also done a podcast about anti-Semitism in the vegan movement, which I will also link below. But this is why it's so pernicious to have criticisms of Israel labeled as anti-Semitism, because it takes away from actually very problematic anti-Semitism that very much does exist and that we are fighting, you know, that anti-fascists are out here actively fighting. I also want to remind people that Maureen interviewed the incredible Laura Schleifer, who is another vegan Jewish anti-Zionist activist. Um, so I'll link that below as well. It's on the vegan washing of Israel and how veganism has been used, much like pink washing, to basically sanitize and whitewash Israeli occupation and war crimes. We've also done an episode with Abby Martin on the Great March of Return and the history of Palestinian struggle and Israel's ties with the U.S. 
U.S. Uh, Jacob and Cheryl also touch on this as well. You know, the U.S. propping up the IDF militarily to maintain a military outpost in the Middle East. Uh, the IDF training U.S. police forces with the IDF's suppressive tactics being used during the Ferguson riots against BLM protesters and at Standing Rock. Angela Davis, amazing goddess Angela Davis, talks about these ties in her work, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. I mean, even when Trump was building his border wall, he went to Netanyahu for advice because he said, you know, the, the Israelis know what they're doing with their border walls. Like... Come on, from Turtle Island to Palestine, colonial occupation is a crime. We stand for decolonial politics here and everywhere, and it's time to stop allowing the most powerful people, neoconservative actors, to perpetuate violence using our tax dollars. Luckily, it seems that the tide is turning. 5,000 people came out to a rally last Friday in Toronto for Palestinian liberation. Um, Jacob and I were there and his friend as well, and they were holding up signs that read Jews against apartheid, and they were honestly like celebrities. They must have had their picture taken about a hundred times. Everybody wanted a selfie, uh, but the energy was just electric, and leaving that rally, it was honestly like the Raptors had just won the playoffs. <laughs> like every car down the streets were honking. They were leaning out of their cars with Palestinian flags. People were playing drums. Um, it was beautiful. It was so hopeful. So with that, uh, before we get into the episode, I'd like to graciously thank our new supporters, uh, Lucia Whitaker or Lucia Whitaker. Uh, and Jane Doe, thank you so much. This is a donor-funded show, and we rely on your generous donations to keep going. If you would like to become a sustaining member and get access to the Total Liberation Discord server that I co-host with Mad Blender and Catherine, head over to patreon.com slash veganvanguard. We hold community chats on the Discord twice per month. It's a great time. You can also give us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, veganvanguardpodcast.com. And please, 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 give us a kind rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. It helps us tremendously. So without further ado, please enjoy this VV takeover episode and maybe leave us a comment on social media to let Jacob know that he did a great job. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. I am Jacob, Maxi's fiance, as of a few weeks ago. I am a Jewish, I'm an anti-Zionist activist in Toronto, and I'm a member of Independent Jewish Voices Canada. Uh, and I have with us today, Cheryl Nestel, our fearless leader, who's on the uh, executive committee of Independent Jewish Voices Canada, who's agreed to be with us today, and I'm really excited about it. So to start us off, Cheryl, could you introduce yourself and talk a bit about your work in the IJV? Sure. I uh, have been in IJV since its inception, which is now 12 years ago. Um, and I've been on the steering committee for the last 10 years, which is a really long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I personally, I'm a retired sociologist. I taught at U of T for many years. And uh, the work that we're doing has been, we've been building up to this moment. We started small and we are now, I think, the largest Palestine solidarity organization 
certainly the largest Jewish one in, in, in Canada. And we are influential even beyond Canadian borders. We, we are known internationally as the most successful anti-IHRA organization in the world because we have managed to uh, prevent the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, working definition of anti-Semitism from being adopted in several places. And we seem to be holding it uh, at bay at this point. And we have a phenomenal website and we've been very, very active around that. That's been our main campaign for the last couple of years. And, you know, we work on many fronts. We have grown. We now have four for employees, where once we had none, we uh, have chapters all across Canada and on several campuses that are very active. And um, I'm not sure what else to tell you. We've, you know, we've been involved now in lobbying politicians. We have a, a, a pro-Palestine lobby um, on Parliament Hill that is trying to compete with the. Zionist lobby on Parliament Hill, which is a real challenge, mm-hmm. um, but that's happening. It, every year we expand, and every year we expand our influence. And we have now, you know, it's gotten to the point where most of you know, many press outlets will come to us uh, to ask for a comment when when things are going on. We just had Leah Tarachansky, who's an active member uh, on the CBC. Good friend. Um, of mine. Yeah, she's great. And um, yeah, so we, our influence has, is continuing to spread. It's, it's sometimes surprises even us how, how influential we've become. That's fantastic to hear. I didn't even know the extent of that expansion. So that's wonderful. For our American listeners, could you describe briefly the relationship between independent Jewish voices and Jewish voices for peace? Sure. You know, people like to say we're the, we're the Canadian version of, of Jewish Voice for Peace. And that's sort of true, although we don't have a, a formal uh, relationship. We have a very, very good working relationship with JVP. We recently uh, issued a joint statement around the Jerusalem Declaration Against Anti-Semitism, which came out uh, as competition for the IHRA uh, definition. Um, and we incorporated in, into it our critique of the JDA, as well as our support for the intention of the JDA. But that was a joint IJV, uh, JVP project, and we are in continuous conversation with them, and we see our goals as absolutely identical. Fantastic! You wouldn't happen to have the next, the new definition of anti-Semitism uh, on hand, would you? If not, I can just insert it here. Yeah, I, well, the JDA is a very long document, so I, I, see. I um, yeah, I don't have it <laughs> memorized. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to sum it up really quickly, it is, whereas the IHRA definition talks about, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up, that, that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, the, the Jerusalem Doc Declaration against anti-Semitism, about anti-Semitism does not do that. It uh, explicitly says that criticism, even strong criticism of the Israeli government and of the state uh, is in no way anti-Semitic, um, signed by 200 of the highest level Holocaust and Jewish studies scholars around the world. And uh, yeah, so it's starting to make its rounds and we'll see how it gets utilized. But I think as an intervention, it's been quite brilliant and really important. That's fantastic. I believe recently dozens of 
rabbinical students signed a similar document saying that anti that criti uh, criticism of the state of Israel is not anti anti Semitic. So um, with that, let's uh, move on to what's happening in Israel right now, so, or in occupied Palestine. All eyes are on Sheikh Chara at the moment, which is uh, serving as a jumping off point for activists to shed light on the nature of Israeli occupation of Palestine more broadly. For those who haven't been following, could you explain the sequence of events in Jerusalem that led to this latest round of state violence against Palestinians? Okay, I'll, I'll try and uh, I'll do my best. I know, it's a big, a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. Um, well, Sheikh Jarrah, the area there, um, was actually purchased late in the 19th century by Jewish groups. They never built on that land. After 1948, um, Jordan took over the management of that area and built housing for uh, Palestinian refugees, the 700,000 Palestinian refugees who were forced out of uh, what became the state of Israel after 1948. And in the early 70s, with the advent of the settler movement, um, which started in the late 60s, but as it grew, um, there arose a movement to reclaim that land as Jewish land. And it has been in the courts on and off for a very long time. You know, what's ironic about it is that, you know, so many homes uh, in West Jerusalem were, were abandoned that had been owned by Arabs, including the, the home of Edward Said, the very famous uh, literary critic and, and Palestinian advocate himself a Palestinian. And while Jews were entitled to reclaim land that had been uh, recovered, let's say, in 1948, the Palestinians were never offered access to their abandoned homes, many of which are palatial, I mean, really amazing and beautiful places. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that is the, it, you know, it was the Israeli policy of um, actually taking over and appropriating for the, for the state any land that was not occupied in 1948. So when Palestinians abandoned, were forced out of their homes, um, any properties that were not occupied at the time became uh, uh, the property of the Israeli state. And of course, there is no, there was no reciprocal arrangement for, you know, uh, for Palestinians in the way that there was for Jews who re could reclaim their property. So you have this going, so there's been an increasing amount of of a uh, number of protests around Sheikh Jarrah. Um, people see it as a, you know, uh, as emblematic of ethnic cleansing and the, the move to Judaicize Jerusalem, um, which is what you heard from the, you know, slogans of the ultra-Orthodox right-wingers who were celebrating Jerusalem Day near the Wailing Wall. And that is the intention, is to ethnically cleanse Jerusalem of Palestinians and make Jerusalem an all Jewish city. Um, and as you probably know, Jerusalem is holy to three religions, three Abrahamic religions. And, and this is a, you know, an enormous threat, an enormous insult. Um, certainly the Palestinians for whom the third largest site in Islam is, is the, uh, the Dome of the Rock there, um, the, the mosque there. So you've got that going on in the background, and and that that issue had really gotten a lot of attention in the weeks before these hostilities broke out. 
um, and people were demonstrating there, Palestinians and um, Israeli Jews who were pro-Palestinian were demonstrating uh, against the eviction of uh, residents from Sheikh Jarrah. So you've got that going on. And then you have, an, in late April, uh, and of course this is Ramadan, the, you know, the holiday where Muslims fast, and then in the evenings um, there's eating and celebration. It's a very holy month. Um, it's a celebratory month, and one of the traditions in Jerusalem is that is that you sit on the people come after the fast is over, and if they've eaten to sit on the steps in East Jerusalem, the steps of Damascus Gate, and police were every evening evicting people from the steps, brutalizing people, moving them out of the area, which was infuriating. For, for many Palestinians for whom that was a regular um, uh, tradition. What happened then was the convergence of a bunch of things. So you've got Ramadan going on. Then you have Jerusalem Day, which, is, uh, which has been for the last several years an opportunity for right-wing ethno-nationalists to parade through East Jerusalem, shouting slogans, flying Israeli flags, the police always had Palestinian shops closed at that time to avoid the inevitable violence. Um, so you have this looming. You have, so one of the things, in the meantime, there are, of course, prayers going on in, uh, in the Al-Aqsa uh, Mosque. And uh, there is certainly dissatisfaction with what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah. And so what happens is that the protests, police start to enter the area around the mosque to quell the protests in advance of Jerusalem Day. And uh, of course, this is, and there were hundreds of injuries of Palestinians. And of course, the symbolic uh, meaning of attacking the third holiest place in Islam uh, is not lost on anybody. And this is when the rockets start to fly from Gaza. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are right now. So it's a series of events. Of course, the background to all of this is, you know, the 73-year occupation, the, you know, the 14-year the, the blockade of Gaza, and the, the position of Palestinians as people without citizenship, without mobility, without recognition. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a perfect storm in a lot of ways. So a lot of things converge together to cause things to spin out of control into the way they are right now. Yeah, thank you for that very holistic uh, answer. Uh, it's We've all seen, anyone who's been engaging with this topic online has seen the counterpoint of, oh, this started with the rockets, but this couldn't obviously couldn't be any further from the truth. And when I saw the, the, the marches of the, of, uh, the far right, uh, Zionist through East Jerusalem, it brought a few things to mind. Most recently, the 2016 Charlottesville Tiki torch March and going further back, uh, it reminded me of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. So these similarities to me are palpable and, is this something that occurs every every Jerusalem day? Is it has been for quite a while. I can't give you an exact date when it was started, but it's something that has happened, you know, every year for many years now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a bit of a, it's a free for all, right? It's a hate fest, um, and it's a 
you know, it, it is a, a demonstration of colonial power at, at its worst. And people fear for their lives during this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite shocking, actually. Okay, so you, you had been living... Wait, I'm sorry. Are you from Israel or you had just moved I, did, I wasn't born in Israel, but okay. I lived in Israel for 15 years. I lived there between 1973 and 1988. So I left very soon after the first intifada started mm-hmm. and and that was the reason i left i mean i you know i i guess you know in those days you could have characterized me as a radical zionist or a liberal zionist and because you know while i was aware of many contradictions and you know anti-occupation um and we've all gone many of us have gone from anti-occupation to palestine solidarity um over the last several decades but um thinking that we could change things i mean when i went in 1973 it was only you know six years since the since the 67 war the occupation was only six years old and everybody always said from the beginning i mean the left always said from the beginning this won't last israel will pull back they will you know and here we are you know 53 years later 54 years later um you know, at the worst point possible. So, you know, I mean, it was, it was a bit of an illusion, but at the time it seemed feasible. So I lived there for 15 years. I was very active on the Israeli left, but there came a point at which I realized that I was living a delusional life. And I used to say, I'm, I, I, I'm, I can no longer be the, you know, the, the boss of a million Arabs. I, I this is not, this is not working. Um, and I left. Yeah. Yeah, the occupation obviously damages Palestinians immensely, but I think that something that's overlooked is the fact that it damages Jews as well, it damages their souls in a way. When you perpetrate violence, it harms not only the recipient of the violence, but the attacker themselves uh, for having debased themselves, and it, it's just heartbreaking. Um on the topic of the occupation having lasted much longer than anticipated, it seems to me that that's a product of U.S. support and U.S. imperialism. The IDF is funded by the U.S. government to the tune of $3.8 billion per year. What accounts for that funding? What is the United States' interest in perpetuating the occupation and supporting Israel no matter what uh, war crimes they commit? I'll do my best. I mean, I can, you know, I can give you some kind of pat answers. I know I'm not a political scientist, so yeah. I'm not going to give you anything really comp- complex. I mean, other than to say that, you know, both countries are involved in settler colonial projects, mm-hmm. so they identify with one another. You know, the 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 idea of the U.S. having a power base in the Middle East um, when it was in conflict with so many of the Arab states in the area makes perfect sense, absolute perfect sense. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's you know, the world is, is divided at this point. You know, there are those who are on the side of, you know, colonial settlement and imperial conquest, and, you know, those who are not. Um, and certainly Israel, U.S. sees in Israel a mirror, the mirror image of itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it sees it as a Western, a bastion of Western values and thought, um, and therefore an ally that can be depended on. What I don't know what Biden is up to. That is mm-hmm. a real mystery to me. 
Um, well, there's resurfaced footage of, of from. I'm sorry to interrupt. There's resurfaced uh, footage from him about. It looks to be about maybe 30 years ago of him speaking to, I assume, Congress, say, justifying uh, uh, the United States support of Israel, saying that if Israel didn't exist, the United States would have to create it as a bastion to uphold their interests in the Middle East. Yeah, no, no, that makes, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was saying. I mean, the the good news on that front, and it really is surprising, and it's very welcome, is what's going on in Congress now with folks who are opposing uh, Israeli violence uh, and the continued occupation. So obviously led by people like like AOC um, and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar, but mm-hmm. many others as well. Like there seems to be a real turnaround going on, um, which is really an, an excellent development because we have not seen this before. And you got to credit the squad for, you know, really bringing that to the fore. Absolutely. And Bernie too. Really positive. Really. And Bernie. Yes, Bernie. Yeah. Bernie. We love Bernie. Yeah. Um, he has his he has his issues, but critical support for our, our friend Bernie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of other reasons I might say why. I mean, it's, you know, the strategic ally, et cetera, et cetera. You know, again, so many, so many confluences there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel also of, of carries out covert and overt operations that help uphold American imperialism in the Middle East. You know, we saw recently the um, assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist. That was a more overt operation, but they've been conducting covert operations for decades and decades as well. Uh, And there was uh, an official who worked under, I think it was Nixon, I'll have to look this up, who said that, who characterized Israel as America's aircraft carrier in the Middle East. That sounds, that's, I like that. That's very good. I mean, you know, I'm not giving you a very sophisticated answer. People who are more attuned to diplomatic relations, et cetera, could give you a better answer mm-hmm. uh, for that. But, um, you know, in general, you just can see the, the confluence of, of, of interest. But, you know, it's also that I'm thinking about things like the, you know, technology, spyware, surveillance uh, technology that is really is, are so good at developing that are they're brilliant at developing it. And I, the U.S. has taken those on and and warmed to them and uses, uses them in their own uh, in their own surveillance uh, uh, activities. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of things. Everybody knows about the training of police, U.S. police in Israel, in, you know, crowd control, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it's not just there, that there's some kind of ideological um, agreement, ideological uh, identification, but there are, it's like one hand washes the other. We are both, in, you know, invested in, in, in keeping you know, the natives, so to speak, down, and we can share these uh, technologies. And uh, we love that Israel develops these technologies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those are those are other things. I think there are many, many layers of that, that, you know, it's hard to go into uh, all at once. One of the things that I deal with constantly when that we deal with constantly when talking to our own community is this idea that Israel is the only thing that stands between Jews and a second Holocaust. How, how, how do you answer that? I mean, I have my own answer, but yours is probably better than mine. So, 
Um, okay, that's a very good question. Um, because this is like the main thing that they always come back to, and they assume that if you're if you oppose Israel, you somehow support a second Holocaust. This is the accusation that we have to deal with, right? Um, you know, obviously, you cannot transpose one historical situation onto another. I mean, people who say things like that see anti-Semitism as a trans-historical phenomenon. In other words, it exists like some kind of virus, and it's often called a, vi called a virus, in the air that emerges, comes out of its slumber every so often, but it is inevitable. It is, you know, it defies history. If you believe, and there's certainly, I, I think what people don't understand is that certainly in, in, in the academic world and among intellectuals, um, there has been a long-term fight against this notion. This is a notion I think that's rooted in ethno-nationalism, you know, overly pessimistic view in general of the world. But, you know, I think every single historical epoch where anti-Semitism has arisen has its own particular elements that have made it so. So it's not identical. So to say that at any moment it can erupt, at any moment it can erupt in, in, a, in a genocidal way is really to have a very narrow view of how history works and how the world works. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of things. I think that it's become almost impossible to say that anti-Semitism um, needs to be looked at in historical context. That you know, there's, there is, a, I mean, I like to say people, you know, people, I mean, one of the things you said you were going to ask me was about, um, you know, uh, community trauma or historical trauma or, mm -hmm. or inherited trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my answer to that is always, to my mind, um, I mean, apart from actual Holocaust survivors or pogrom, I mean, there aren't any pogrom survivors around right now. You know, I'm the grandchild of pogrom survivors. Mm -hmm. um, but the actual inherited trauma to me is a real problematic concept. I think that this is a produced response. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Jewish educational systems, if you look at the you know, the educational events that happened within the institutional Jewish community. If you look at certain kinds of texts that are circulated and what goes on during Holocaust Commemoration Week, this trauma is inculcated in people. They're made to believe that this threat hangs over them at all times. Mm -hmm. And that some, I mean, this, there's, there's a notion floating around which I think drives me a little batty of epigenetic transmission of trauma. Mm. In other words, people are so people are traumatized. Jews, let's talk about Jews because I think there are other groups that this may be more applicable to. But that you know, in other words, if my you know mother was a Holocaust survivor, which she is not, I'd say, but I had you know my my family. Uh, my husband's family are Holocaust survivors. Uh, my children are grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I've lived in this family for 45 years. I know what that's about. Um, but the fact is that this notion of epigenetic transmission is that the original victim who is tra who was traumatized by the Holocaust passes on genetic information 
that lives in you know the offspring and actually makes the offspring or creates an experience or a deficit in the offspring because of that experience. Um, this is very contentious, of course, but they're now third generation folks who are saying that they are the victims of epigenetic transmission of, of trauma through the Holocaust. And these are such problematic notions. But so you have that kind of discourse going on, but also the way Jewish education and Jewish communal life transmits notions of the Holocaust and what they mean for today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are, there are two camps, basically. There are those, you know, and this will be familiar to you, but never again and never again for anyone. Mm-hmm. And this has been going on for, as far as I know, for 60 years. Um, and these are camps within the Jewish community as well, within the scholarly community, and it's, you know, th- there hasn't been any resolution of this at all. And I think it's gotten even stronger now. So you have young Jews who, you know, who have values and, and, and commitments uh, beyond their own ethnic group who say, yes, we can learn from the Holocaust, definitely. And, and it is our responsibility to counter fascism and 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 um and ethnocentricity and racism wherever it arises so that no one has to suffer this again um as opposed to kind of the inward looking insulated notion that jews within the institutional community have that you we're we're only out to protect our own that it's never again for jews we have to fight anti-semitism wherever we see it um, we have to expand our notions of anti-Semitism to the nth degree and, you know, and, 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 and utilize that in order to draw other people into that concept. I mean, I think there's a real internal battle, but it's a battle that's happening at many levels. Mm-hmm. It's happening at the level of young people who are, you know, committed to social justice, but it's happening also in the intellectual world as well. So, um, Yeah. That's that's my long answer uh, about about that, and I think we have to be really clear about about what we are led to believe and how that uh, influences how people think and how they think about their own relationship uh, to the Holocaust. And that's a very difficult thing because the Holocaust is a really taboo subject. And I think just to get back to the the question about the U.S. and one of the things I didn't mention mm-hmm. is that I think. All of the Western world, right, harbors this enormous guilt about what happened in the Holocaust, you know, and and their inability to step up and and actually do anything that would, you know, that would have helped Jews before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And and I think that you know the the over identification with Israel, the over concern with anti semitism that we're seeing now. Not, which is not to say that there isn't a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism, but uh, and that it has grown, but um, you know the the obsession with it is part of you know a process by which the current the contemporary uh, forms of anti-Semitism of, of racism, sorry, which are so evident in so much of Europe um, and in the U.S. and in Canada are kind of pushed away. Um, through this concern with Jews and anti-Semitism. Um, it's what uh, Max uh, Haven calls the, uh, 
you know, the get out of racism free card. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in other words, if we step up and show that we're against it, this is what this IHRA, the adoption of the IHRA by many governments, um, you know, we're anti-racist, we're the good guys, we don't abide by this, and we're going to demonstrate that by showing how much we oppose anti-Semitism and how strong we're going to be on anti-Semitism while ignoring other forms of racism, like anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Black racism, many, you know, many others that I could mention. Uh, and I just want to mention for those of you who are, who are listening who are interested in this, um, the, the work of Alana Lenton, Why Racism Still Matters, a book that came out very recently where she takes this up. And the chapter on Jews, good Jews, bad Jews, is really spectacular. Um, And I think that analysis is one that I'm hearing more and more lately about how the state, the, the influence of the state, the impact of the state in creating this anti anti Semitism um, really shields the state from um, critiques around the racism that it enacts against other groups. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so getting back to Jewish education um, and the ways, the things that are taught particularly to young Jewish people, um, having lived in, well, I, a bit of something about myself, I was, I didn't grow up in these institutions, right? I, I didn't go to Hebrew school. I didn't go to Jewish summer camp. I was never exposed to these arguments until much later uh, after the point at which I had developed critical thinking skills. Uh and uh, because of that, they didn't really have uh, much of an effect on me. So having lived in Israel, how would you describe the ways in which Palestinians and the occupation are discussed among uh, Jewish Israelis, and, uh, and uh, particularly within these institutions? Well, I have to say, number one, I, did, I also didn't grow up like this. I like to say that um, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin made me a Zionist um, <laughs> because I was I was a student radical in the sixties, and we studied Marxism and Leninism. And you know, Lenin's line was that you have to go through the national process, the process of nationalization, before you can get to workers' liberation. I mean, I don't abide by that so much anymore. Mm-hmm. But you know, as, as somebody who's like trying to rationally understand what would make Jewish life better or what would um, contribute to the growth of Jewish culture and living a Jewish life, that made sense to me. And therefore, you know, I, on a theoretical basis, I adopted Zionism as my own. I did not grow up like, I grew up the same way you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say, I, I don't even, I don't even remember the six day war. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was 17. I should by all rights remember almost everybody else i know remembers it you know but Mm -hmm. i have no recollection um that's how tuned i was to things um and you know just to to get to your actual question um so i've lived in israel for a very long time i actually have not been back to israel since 1988 Mm. yeah i almost went this actually last summer i was supposed to go to work on the the uh, Jerusalem Declaration. I, I was involved in the development of the Jerusalem Declaration uh, on anti-Semitism. I was supposed to go. I didn't want to go, but I thought this is too important. I'm, I'm going to go. But I was dreading it, absolutely dreading it. Um, and then COVID hit, so mm-hmm. I didn't go. But I haven't been back. So I. it's very, it's hard for me to comment. I can tell you about what I felt when I lived there. I, I do follow um, you know, the Israeli press and, um, and often read it in Hebrew, um, for things that I would 
you know, really want to know about. Um, I, I have one memory that I will dredge up and that um, when we first went to Israel, we went to join a new kibbutz. But first we went to training on, a, on an older kibbutz. It was right after the 73 war and everybody was very demoralized. It was not a good time. Um, but so I'm walking, I was working in the, in the grape vineyards and I was walking to breakfast with an old, very older, much older kibbutz member. And he said to me, and I was so nice, you know, I'm, this is naivety. So to me, you know, who's a good Arab? I'm like, yeah, who? <laughs> a dead Arab. Yeah. So the answer was a dead Arab, <sighs> which I'll never forget it as long as I live. And this is like a left-wing kibbutz, right? I mean, theoretically left-wing mm-hmm. labor movement. Um, well, so, so that's the kind of thing that I would encounter. Um, it, it, the anti-Palestinian racism, which has not abate, abated since those days, was very strong. I didn't dare when I lived there. I didn't dare tell my neighbors what I did, you know, politically. Um, uh, I like there's another funny story about how in the um, th- in the elections when um, the Likud came to power in 1977 which was, of course, a huge shock for everybody. I was working, mm-hmm. um, I headed the office of Shelley, which is one of the left-wing parties in Rehovah, where I live. So when we went to check, I actually wasn't living in Rehovah, I was working in Rehovah, but we lived in a very small town called Gadara. And um, when I went to check the, uh, the newspaper to see what the vote was in our town, there was one vote for my party for Shelley. Uh, my husband voted for a different party. Um, and that kind of sums it up, right? Was that your vote? That was my vote. That yeah. My vote. Yeah. Uh, so that was interesting. But but really, you kept very quiet. We used to go out. We didn't, you know, we used to do interesting things. Like we would go and build sandcastles on the beach and on Saturday and say we we're building castles for peace. And we would get all kinds of abuse, incredible abuse. So, I mean, you know, to be a leftist there then, I mean, it was much better than it is now. The left is decimated now. You know, the left has moved right. So mm-hmm. you have somebody like Gantz, who is supposed to be... The so-called opposition leader who is ordering the airstrikes on Gaza as we speak. Exactly. And, or you know, we're going to turn, we're going to kick Gaza back into the uh, Stone Age. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that shift of the left way to the right. And you have the left, uh, you know, the real, the hard left, practically non-existent. Practically non-existent. Well, many left, right? Including yourself. Well, that's what I wanted to say is that what's interesting to me as an academic is the number of left academics who have left Israel in the last 20 years. Some of the most important, I mean, Elon Pape is the most obvious ones, yeah. but there's Neve Gordon. I could go on and name them one after the other. So, so any intellectual opposition with any force has really abandoned the place because it has become impossible to be a leftist there. There are laws against, for example, Nakba commemoration. There are laws against, you know, you cannot be a BDS supporter. It's against the law to be a BDS supporter. There's one um, professor that I worked with on the JDA who he's so cautious. He, you know, he has to be so cautious about what he says because he, he can ever be seen to be supporting BDS. Mm-hmm. Um, he will lose his, his ability to influence his own discipline, right? He will but, not be accepted in this discipline. But wait, I, I thought Israel was the only democracy in the Middle East. What are you saying? 
Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, well, that's not democratic by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, people also, yeah, people will say, look how democratic Israel is. You can say anything there. There are all kinds of opinions, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And of course there are, but to say that you can't, it is illegal to speak of the Nakba, to commemorate the Nakba, is illegal to support BDS. You know, these are very intimidating things and it can really ruin your life to be outed as someone who has those beliefs. So, you know, I mean, I think the decimation of the academic community uh, in terms of those who have a critical understanding of what goes on there um, is very, very saddening to me. I I find it really, it's a real, you know, benchmark of how how bad things have gotten, that, that people have felt they need to leave uh, in order to say what they need to say, to research what they need to research. Um, that is a very sad commentary. Yeah, it really is. Um, so actually along those lines, uh, the charge of anti-Semitism has long been weaponized to stifle any critique of Israel's human rights violations or war crimes. What are the implications for equating Judaism and Zionism for Jews in the diaspora? And what I'm really interested in is how can non-Jews navigate this when advocating for Palestinian liberation? Um, Wow, that's a complicated question. Um, uh, I think that, you know, we have to fight back. And I think we have been doing a pretty good job of it to show that anti-Zion, you know, criticism of Israel for sure. But even opposition to a Jewish ethnostate yes. is not anti-Semitic. It is not, you know, a, a, a condemnation of Jews. It's a condemnation of an ideological and practical stance that oppresses other people. Um, Jews were anti-Zionist. Most Jews were anti-Zionist, or at least, you know, not interested in Zionism before the establishment of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you look at the history of, of the Zionist movement in the U.S., it was very, very slow to catch on. Mm-hmm. It was a fringe ideology. Most people don't know that. It was, you know, 100 to 80 years ago, it was like your weird uncle at the dinner table was a Zionist. And and the dominant, uh, one of the dominant ideologies uh, was socialism <laughs> and uh, working class solidarity proletarian internationalism, and to a lesser extent, liberal assimilationism. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, and maybe this is a tough topic, but one of the things that accelerated assimilation in general in the U.S., and in Canada has a different trajectory, but in the U.S. was the 67 war. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Jews were slowly making their way into places where they had not been accepted before, after World War II. But there was something about the victory in 1967. Particularly a victory over non-white peoples. Yeah, the, you know, but the creation of, of the Jew as you know, the muscle Jew, which was mm-hmm. something that Zionism um, you know, put forward in a very strong way, that, that you know, trying to conquer this notion that Jews were, they were scholarly, they were pale, and this is a very male you know, image. I might point out, mm-hmm. um, you know, that 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 Jews, because they weren't working the land and and, you know, doing it and, and didn't have their own state, they were a subpar race. And people have, com- have have compared this very central notion of Zionism to actual anti-Semitic discourse yes. from 
from non-Jews, right? Absolutely. And, and it's it's true and it's sad and it is what it is. But I'm saying that, you know, as 67 was a real turning point in that Jews were able to see themselves as empowered somehow, as strong, as masculine, and kind of overcoming the, if you will, schlemiel notion of who Jews were, kind of, you know, weak, you know, undeveloped, underdeveloped physically, that kind of thing. Which is, of course, based in in absolute lies. Like, <laughs> Jews had been fighting in the Bund, they fought in the Red Army, they uh, uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, we never took our abuse uh, lying down. Right, right. And, but but I think that there's an overinvestment in that notion now where, you know, like the, the more damage we do, the more powerful we are, the more masculine we are. Um, and of course, being able to identify with a nation mm-hmm. um, and a powerful nation, a militaristic nation imbued in Jews at, after that point, pr- this pride. So, I, I mean, I can tell you just because I'm old enough that um, when I was growing up, I mean, there was a lot of Zionist stuff and, you know, I did occasionally interact with the Jewish community, but um, I watched um, after 1967, Israeli culture take over Jewish cultural life in the United States. And this is a very much of a documented, because uh, I'm, I'm originally from the States, right? Mm-hmm. This is an actual doc. This is quite documented. It's a very interesting books that people have written about this. But, you know, what this really did was to hamper for any kind of, you know, um, grassroots development of, of alternatives. Because um, Jewish life was sort of waiting. I mean, the, you know, assimilation was held out as a good alternative, a good possibility. People were being able to assimilate. And all of a sudden, there is a way of invigorating the Jewish community. And that is an injection of Zionism. We have things like, I remember my friends used to want me to go to Israeli dancing, which I never was <laughs> interested in. So there are all these Israeli-based things and the celebration of Israeli holidays and you know many other um, manifestations of Israeli culture that are imported into North America and, 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 and you know, other Jewish communities, which really, I think, give people more loyalty to the Jewish state than they might have had otherwise. So it takes over, it fills a void. Um, you know, I was involved in the 60s and 70s in the alternative Jewish radical movement, which was trying to build a, a an alternative Jewish culture in the United States, mm-hmm. um, including, you know, the, the Chaburah movement is an outgrowth of that. So many, the, the Seder, you know, the Freedom Seder is an outgrowth of that. All these things that we take for granted today, things that we tried to builds up as sort of, you know, these who are, are are responding to our local situations on the ground and creating new cultural forms. This is a history that isn't very well known, unfortunately, but that gets overwhelmed by um, these Zionist cultural forms that are brought in by emissaries, who this becomes a thing where the Israeli state send, sent emissary, emissaries to all the Jewish communities, to the Jewish um, summer camps. Um, and this was a real uh, source of, of of turning Jewish culture into Israeli culture. Mm. So you, you've got a lot of interesting processes going on. So if you ask me, you know, why are Jews so invested in, in Israel? There are many, many, many reasons. Yes. Um, but, you know, the, I think this is this is one of them. This is definitely one of them. 
this is the sociologist in me speaking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So can I ask you to comment on on liberal Zionism and how how to reach not even necessarily Jewish people here, but here, but people who believe that that they're being fair and progressive and balanced when they say when they characterize the occupation as a conflict between between two equal sides uh, who have equal claims and ultimately support still a two state solution is a two state solution viable? Was it ever? Uh, I don't think it was, and. <laughs> Uh, has Israel ever really been committed to the peace process? Okay, I'll start with the, the liberal Zionist question, which is such a vexing question, shall we mm-hmm. say. I, I think that one of the problems is the complete lack of understanding of the historical narrative in its most respectable forms. You know, I think that the the advent of the new historians in the 80s in in Israel, I mean, one of the things when I think back about my own experience, like, why did I go there to, in the first place? If I would have known then what I know now, I would have never have gone. Mm-hmm. But the our, our access in English, I think, to the historical narrative, um, the, an accurate historical narrative was severely limited. I mean, there were a few historians, certainly Palestinians and Palestinian historians had written about it, but these weren't necessarily, you know, stories that we had access to. There were a few early uh, Israeli scholars and, and, and others who did write about this, but they weren't available to us in the way that today we have access to you know, Benny Morris, who is, I mean, I won't sing his praises because he's turned around, but, you know, documented absolutely, you know, the, the, the Palestinian refugee problem in, in great historical detail. Uh, Elon Pape, Avi Schleim, I could go on and on, mm-hmm. but we now have this massive historical record that is really incontrovertible. And I think that there's a, a, an incredible ignorance around that mm-hmm. um, on the part of, of a lot of liberal Zionists, uh, maybe not the really committed ones, but the people who just have that position. Um, I think there's a real need for education, a serious need for education. Um, I've been teaching a course like in my living room for the last 10 years, uh, Critical Perspectives on Israel and Zionism. Um, and oftentimes we have people who are really knowledgeable, but they don't realize what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So if, if these people who want to come out and study that don't know a lot, you can only imagine the people who, you know, stick to the liberal Zionist position. I really think that you can't solve everything with education, but I think there's a real, I mean, you know, certainly the, the Palestinian narrative has been suppressed over and over again. It does not make its way into educational materials within the Jewish community. It barely makes it into the public record. Probably, you know, your listeners understand that the mainstream press is almost always pretty much silent on on Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really happy yesterday to read a petition signed by 200 journalists and others uh, in Canada urging the mainstream media outlets to stop suppressing news about Palestine and the voices of Palestinians. It's way past time for that. So you have that. So you have you have a society and a culture that does not that is really profoundly imbued with anti-Palestinian racism. 
Um, therefore, we do not get to hear these stories. They are not made public. They are not heard in the Jewish community. They are not heard in the Jewish educational institutions. So, you know, there's there's an ability to have a smug position that says, you know, I know what's right. When there's not much engagement with with um, with the other side, shall we say? Yeah. So that that's a huge, huge problem. The other thing is that I, I you know, I, I just I get so frustrated seeing these liberal Zionist and Jewish organizations that are doing stuff for indigenous rights in Canada and supporting Black Lives Matter and other you know anti-racist initiatives, having you know um, Muslim Jewish dialogue um, when you know that they can't apply the same uh, principles that they seem to take to these issues to the issue of Palestine. It is an absolute, it is willful blindness. It is, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a contradiction. It's, it's, it's willful ignorance, cognitive dissonance, whatever you want to call it. It is an, an inability to, to make that shift. And I think that people hold on to these loyalties for their lives. Mm -hmm. And I mean that, actually, I do mean that because I think that once you allow these notions in, <laughs> you have to, your whole sense of self changes. You have to change your sense of self because if you've been feeling victimized, if you've been taught that, that Jews are victims, they're constantly victims, they will always be victims. When you let your consciousness, you know, embrace the notion that Jews have been victimizers, your innocence is, is disappears in a puff of smoke. Mm -hmm. And I think for many of us, we, we cling to our innocence with, you know, incredible strength. Um, and I, I think this is a real problem. I, I mean, it, it, it sounds kind of psychological and it is in a lot of ways. And one of the things, you know, that I found int really interesting, really helpful is that, um, looking at it from sort of a psychoanalytic perspective and seeing, you know, what is it that disallows people to let these notions in? Um, why can't people do battle emotionally and, and, and cognitively with these ideas? And I think it's because they, they do offer such a threat to mm -hmm. one sense of self. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in this, in this struggle, we have to look to every possible resource to understand it. And, you know, I think for me, what, that's one really important place to look. And I, I was really astounded when I researched stuff that the psychoanalytic academic community is very focused on Palestine. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of writing. Because I think that that has been such a challenge to understand, you know, why these, you know, why, why people dig their heels in, why Jews dig their heels in around this has been a real challenge to understand. And it's certainly a challenge for me. And I don't, you know, I don't claim to understand it any better after, after having thought about it for such a long time. Yeah. But um, yeah, these are, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of throwing that out there as something to think about. It's not just that people are evil or unwilling. It's that their whole sense of self is at stake in doing this. And we have to offer them something else in place of that if we're going to succeed in changing minds. So what do you offer? Um, I believe the narrative of the two-state solution is firmly dead. There are holdouts, of course, but uh, if, if, if the two-state solution is not viable and it's really looking like that's the case, 
I'd have to hear some very convincing arguments to think otherwise. But even if I did, I don't support that solution to begin with. It seems that the two options now are the status quo of continuing genocide and displacement and oppression or a one-state solution, uh, something that upholds the uh, rights and freedoms and dignity of the entire population, Jews and Palestinians included. Do you agree with that? I agree with you, certainly, that the two-state solution is a dead letter at this point. Um, there was a time at which that was radical to say, to be for a two-state solution, mm-hmm. it was radical. Today, it's not at all radical. It's very, it's like, it's amazing how accepted it is in a lot of places. Um, obviously, the facts on the ground disallow two-state solution. We have 700,000 Israeli sell Jewish settlers living in the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem. Um, what, you know, h- how on earth are you going to put in a, have a Palestinian state there other than evicting them, which seems like a very, very bad idea mm-hmm. and almost impossible. You have the Bantustanization of Palestinian communities. Yes. So everything is cut off from everything else. There's no access to Jerusalem, which is, a you know, this is the main, you know, cultural, political capital of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, you know, again, I'm not a political scientist, so I, you know, I'm not going to be perfect on this, but, but obviously the facts on the ground are such that getting to a Palestinian state seems absolutely, you know, mythical at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there are people on the other side who say, well, a one state solution is sort of mythical as well, mm-hmm. but what gives me, I think what's changed, you know, not changed my mind. Cause I think I always believe that but but looking at some of the work that people are doing like jeff halper and people that he works with palestinians that he has been working with to come up with models that are actually and uh ali abu nima has a really interesting book where he sets out some you know practical uh a, a practical vision for what this might look like and people are so they adhere so strongly to the notion that either that palestinians just want to kill us all which mm-hmm. is i think really very very far from the truth absolutely um and on the other side um jews just want to take over our lives and which is more close to the truth um but the fact that i i mean i don't surely it would be a process right and surely it would be it would take a lot of effort and a lot of you know all kinds of 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 you know a process that would of reconciliation and a process of of uh of truth finding, but certainly not in what's, I mean, nothing is impossible, right? South mm-hmm. Africa, we thought South, South Africa, I mean, not that South Africa is uh, in great shape right now, but at least the worst of it, you know, has been put aside. Um, and it's a process there as well. It's not, mm-hmm. certainly not perfect, but, you know, you have to have a vision of something. And this is not, you know, I, I, the two-state solution is, I mean, when I hear, you know, groups like J space in in Canada, which is yeah. sort of like it's not it's much further right to the right than J Street in the U.S. It's mm-hmm. really not, despite the names being similar. There's not much else that's similar about them. But you know, when I when I see anyone saying, "Oh no, we stand for it. even the Canadian government," you know, we support the two state solution. Well, wh- how do you think that's going to work, given what's you know what's gone on? I, I, it's, 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 I think it's just a talking point at this point. It, it just doesn't have any meaning. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to have any real political meaning at this point. Yeah. So that's, did I miss anything in that question? 
Oh, uh, the last part was, um, has Israel ever really been committed to the peace process? Like, I'm not even sure what the peace process even means at this point. Well, certainly not not from the beginning. I mean, if yeah. you, you know, if you understand, you know, what was, what Ben Gurion developed as as Plan Dalid did there. Uh, about ethnically cleansing much of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Nakba was not any commitment to a peace plan. There was nothing going on there. Oslo was a dismal failure. Um, you know, I, I, even even if you look at the Canadian, you know, polls that we have done in the, with the Canadian public, mm-hmm. even with, Jew, with Jews, Jews themselves, Selves in Canada do not believe that the Israeli government is committed to the peace process. Yeah. So, and I think this is this is the delusion that you know that the institutional Jewish community tries to sell is that Jews are of one voice about this, and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I don't think Israel is serious about a peace process. Every 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 piece of evidence shows it to be untrue. Yeah. So it it seems to be a non-starter, really. Zionism and a peace process, they're antithetical to each other. Uh, they cancel each other out. <laughs> so in being a public, would you call yourself a public figure? Me? Yeah. I, I don't feel like I am one. I mean, I, I, you know, I am an outspoken Jewish Palestine solidarity activist mm-hmm. um, in Canada. Um, you know, I do some public speaking and writing and stuff. So surely you've had uh, the accusation of being a, a so-called self-hating Jew levied at you, like I have uh, on occasion. Absolutely, all the yeah. time. <laughs> no, I kind of let it try and roll off my back. Yeah, my, I'll give you my interpretation of this accusation, and and I'd like to know your thoughts. Basically, I see it as no different uh, from being called a an, an N-word lover uh, a, or a race traitor or an Arab lover. It, it it's so obvious to me that these are the unspoken words behind this accusation. Uh, these are the same words that were cast at uh, white people who supported the civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, what do you think of that interpretation? I think that's a very good, inter- I've never heard anybody say that, but I think that's a very good interpretation. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's a way, like, it's interesting. I just, um, over the years, I've gotten various harassing phone calls and emails and things like that. Uh, so I just got one recently. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I was on a webinar um, and uh, I won't go into the details, but I was on a webinar and obviously I said something someone didn't like. So I, I the next day I opened up my email and it was really one of the most vile things I've ever seen. It was just vile, vile. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what it's interesting. And I'm also doing research now on... Um, the suppression of speech about Palestine. We're, we're doing a, IJV is doing a, a research project. Um, we're interviewing people, um, a lot of academics and students, but also activists about how their speech and teaching, et cetera, have been suppressed. So one of the things we're finding is that people are often, um, and this is what happened in this email that I got, they're like homophobic and sexist mm-hmm. slurs are thrown at them. Um, so I think the idea is to say you're so non-normative, like your ideas are so non-normative that we're going to throw these other non-normative things at you. You must be non-normative in other ways if you're not, you know, because you're so non-normative about Jewish <laughs> identity and your Jewish loyalty. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that people mobilize those those kinds of things to 
to, um, and that's not the first time it's happened, uh, to slam you. Um, there's something about the viciousness of it and the hatred of it and the, and the, and the desire to push people like you and me out of, you know, the realm of normalcy or, or moral life that I find really disgusting. And it is something that the Jewish, the institutional Jewish community takes up in the same way that groups like the Jewish Defense League do as well. They're the worst offenders. Yes. But somebody like B'nai B'rith Canada is almost as bad in things that they've done as well. So there's there's a way, there's a desire to show us as aberrant, as completely aberrant, and therefore people should not pay any attention to us because we're not reliable on any level. Um, and that's a, that's a strategy that they use, and we have to push back at it. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I like to think I'm playing some small part. I've only been accused of being a self, a so-called self-hating Jew once in person, and I the first thing they, that came my mind was just to retort with, "Well, I actually happen to love being Jewish. Thank you very much." But does being a Zionist offer you some sort of psychic powers where you can peer into my into my mind and see what I think of myself? But really, the flip side is there is there saying that if you don't hate the people I hate, you must hate yourself or something like that. And whenever I go to Palestine solidarity rallies, I have run-ins with uh, Jewish Defense League and their supporters uh, who instead and you know they yell through loudspeakers and they try to pick fights and stuff like that and get in arguments with people but instead of offering geopolitical talking points or historical talking points or anything like that they just launch into anti-muslim anti-arab racist diatribes they'll scream about uh the prophet muhammad they'll scream about stereotypes just vile racist stereotypes of muslims and then accuse Jewish people of supporting Palestinians of, of being self-hating Jews. But really, it, it, this whole ordeal, this dynamic reveals, you know, a, a motivation just based on fear and, and hatred. And they see Jews that don't share in that fear of hatred as race traitors in yeah. a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, agreed. So one of the things I like saying now is just saying, yeah, I am a race traitor. And usually their jaws just drop. And that's the end of that. Uh, so to, yeah, uh, that's something that we could use, maybe. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, thanks to the tireless activism of Palestinian rights and human rights organizations, uh, public discourse, especially right now, seems to be shifting. There have been instances where that's happened before, but I mean, now it seems like the narrative the Zionist narrative is really breaking down. It's like to the point where it's a PR disaster for Israel, and I'm not sure if they can recover from this. Uh, so are you hopeful that we'll see Palestinian liberation in our lifetimes? I number one, I agree with you. I've been saying for the last week, this is the turning point. I mm -hmm. feel it in my bones, and I've been doing this work long enough mm -hmm. that I think I have a good instinct developed around it i i really feel like this is going to be a turning point for us and there i mean obviously there are lots of things that are happening at, at once including the critiques of the of the u.s government from inside and those are very important but um i i i really do think we have to keep our eyes on it i think it, i think people are sick of this mm -hmm. and people you know you can't compare 
you know, I don't know what the number is up to now. It was around 150 deaths in Gaza with quite a number of children, maybe 25% of those being children, as opposed to, and it's not a contest, right? But the the impact, I mean, if if the same terror were, you know, enacted on Jews in Israel, hmm. there would be five or 600 dead at this point, And it would be, you know, a huge, there would be a huge outcry. But, you know, because of the devaluation of Palestinian life, people aren't paying attention to that as, at all. It's just, again, another dead Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very, very disturbing. Um, are we going to, uh, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have to say that in my 50 plus years of activism on this, the, you know, what's happening now was inconceivable even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I like to think that we're making progress um, I think that the Palestinian steadfastness is a huge factor that Palestinians are not backing down. Yeah. This, this, what's going on now is such evidence of that. Um, you know, there's nothing to lose here, right? Mm-hmm. There's, not, there's no more to lose. So there's no, you know, there's no holding back. Um, yeah, I think that's a huge factor and that gives me hope. But I think people are waking up to... I mean, the, the manipulative way that Israel is behaving on the world scene um, is very evident to a lot of people. And, and you know, more and more, as we see, like, for, I'll just give you an example, you know, a publication like Jewish Currents um, has re- recently devoted itself to like a deep dive into the institutional Jewish community, uh, its connections to Israel and to propaganda efforts and to, you know, all these things. I mean, people, it's unearthing things that are really, really significant that people are not willing to live with, that liberal Jews are not li- willing to live with, and, you know, others aren't either. So I think there's a there's an unveiling of some of these kind of covert relations and processes that is turning people around. Like one of the things, again, what IJV, another project that I'm involved with, with IJV is um, is looking at who the Jewish community is funding, and this is a project that was done in the states too, where they found that that several Islamophobic Jewish organizations are being funded by Jewish communal money. I I assume evangelical money is going into that too. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, but you know, it, you know, we we just you know what's available to us, we can see where the UJA and others are giving money. Um, and there are, you know, we have a bunch of little people, little people, a bunch of people working on this right now, just looking at every single organization that the UJA gives money to and seeing who they are, what their political roots are, you know, who they have connections to, settler organizations, Islamic, Islamophobic groups, um, and trying to mobilize that liberal Jewish middle to say, say to them is this what you know do they represent you is this where your money should be going um it's time to put an end to this kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and hold the community accountable uh so i know uh you're an avid reader your homes like many jewish homes uh is full of books like my own so I was wondering if you could provide uh, a reading list for people who are interested in the history of the Palestinian struggle, the history of the occupation, and um, anything else you think would be prudent. Okay, I'm going to, there. I just was reading, back to Jewish Currents, in this 
Jewish Currents every week, every Thursday has a Shabbat reading list that they put out. Um, and this week's was really impressive. Each of their editors gives a list of books um, to read. And, and of course, it was related to what's going on right now. And it's excellent. So if you go to the Jewish Currents website, you should be able to find it. But I, I think there, there are many important, gosh, I mean, I can talk about this forever. Mm -hmm. um, things that should be read. Um, okay, let, let me, I'm sorry, let me reframe the question. If you, uh, if you were to make a top five reading list, what must you include on that list? Oh boy. Um, I, okay. I'm going to say a couple of things. I think that, and I'd like to, to really focus on the illusion the Palestinian side of things. Yeah. Uh, my number one book, and it's not, you know, it's not a political science book. Uh, it's called my happiness bears no resemblance to happiness by Adina Hoffman. Hmm. Um, so it's a Jewish author, but it's her 10 years of, of, of research with a Palestinian poet. Um, Muhammad Ali um, Taha, and it is the story of his dispossession and his experience in 48 and what happened to him afterwards. He's a phenomenal poet. Mm. He's dead now, but it really just touched me to the core. There is also the other thing I would say, I mean, this is from the emotional point. If you want to try and make some kind of transition emotionally from being, you know, either pro-Israel or, you know, in that sort of camp. Uh, the other thing is Gate of the Sun um, by Elias Khoury, which is the Palestinian novel, even though the author is Lebanese. But, you know, certainly the, um, I'm trying to think of any of the like straight historical stuff. Yeah, so like nonfiction by a Palestinian author, maybe? Well, any Rashid Khalidi's most recent book, and I can't remember the name of it. It's I think it's called A Hundred Years. It's basically the last hundred years of Palestinian history. Mm -hmm. And it's very personal. So he's Oh, it's like nineteen seventeen to twenty seventeen, a hundred years of Yes. I mean that's the he one. Is, right? he, he is the premier Palestinian historian in the United States. And his name one more time? Rashid Khalidi. Thank you. He's at Columbia University. Um and it's this is a history, but it's very personalized as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's certainly many, many films that I would recommend that I think that are, are excellent. Um, Do you want to name a few? Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm a big film buff, so this is what I'm really interested in. It's one of the things that we're trying to do in IJV2 is create a bibliography and a filmography for people to look at. There are lots of things. I'm trying. You know what? I can't. I'm bad on recall lately. I have. I'd have to like send you the list if you okay. want to. Like, because I'm not. Um, we can put it in the show notes if you send us a list. Okay, I'll send you a list. Great. There. Yeah, but there are many, and most of them are on YouTube and are free. And I. Uh, yes, they're very good. If you want to sit down and watch with your relatives or whoever who are skeptical, mm -hmm. these, are, these are good ways of doing it. I also think that, you know, some of the, the more solid pieces of work like um, Benny Morrison's The Birth of the, of the Palestinian Refugee Problem. Mm. Um, and he has, an, he has another volume after that, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem Revisited. These are like required reading. Um, they're very important. And um the work of Avi Schleim is very important. These are the Jewish historians, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. I have shelves and shelves of books, but, you know, I, I think 
people need to make sure they're reading Palestinian historians as yes. well as Jewish historians, even though the Jewish historians have gotten more notoriety over their, you know, interventions uh, as the new historians. But, but you know, the Palestinian work is extremely important and they said it first. So mm-hmm. um, that's really important um, to remember. But I, that the book, the first book I mentioned, I found profoundly moving and this is i read it you know when i already knew all this stuff but there was something about the the intimate encounter with someone's nakba experience that just took me to a different level Mm -hmm. um and there's some other very interesting things in there like the author we have taha's description of is the uh, of the destruction of his village sephoria in 1948 and then the author goes to the Zionist archives and finds the the narratives that are that are deposited there by those who actually enacted, you know, the the evictions and the destruction, including Dunkelman, the Canadian uh, hero of the yeah. war of 1948, Ben Dunkelman, and and Dunkelman swears up and down, for example, that Sephoria was never strafed by air or bombed by airplanes, whereas <sighs> Taha says, "Excuse me, but." I was there and I know. So, you know, these these processes of 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 explicit forgetting or denial, um, these are very important things to, you know, confront. So I would say that's a to me that was a very, very important book. But you know, all the all the straight history historian history stuff. And also people have access to the Journal of Palestine Studies. Um, some public libraries um, will allow you access. Um, just looking over the work that's in that journal is, is extremely important as well. It's a really important repository and has been for 50 years of, of um, work by both by Jews, by Palestinians, by others um, on on the history and politics of Palestine. So, Amazing. Well, thank you for that list. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, a great resource. And we'll be sure to put some... Uh, recommended reading and film watching in the show notes so i just want to thank you so much for spending the time coming on here i know you're with your family right now and i'm sorry to take you away from them but uh please go back to them and have a great time can you just let people know uh where where ijv's work can be found and uh if people are interested how they can reach out and support and that sort of thing www.ijvcanada.org and for those of you who are interested in the fight against the IHRA, it's uh, www.noihra.ca. Um, yeah, send us a message. We'll write back. Um, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're there. We're everywhere. Um, yeah, and we hope more people will join us because we are growing and we can't, even if you're not Jewish, we welcome your, your membership as a supporter. Yeah, donations are always welcome. And uh, yeah, follow along with us and join us. And Great. Uh, yeah. On the topic of donations, real quick, is there a Palestinian or Palestinian Canadian organization you would recommend donating to as well if people would want to do that? I'm a big fan of the Palestinian youth movement. Um, okay. And you can look them up. Um, they are really brave, really innovative, a whole different ballgame. Um, and I, I really, you know, we work very closely with them, um, and I have great respect for them. And uh, I think they're 
you know, if you want to have some hope, look to the PYM because they're, they have a very new outlook on things and uh, working with them has been nothing but a pleasure. Wonderful. Very, very last thing, I swear. Ken, before you go, can I get a free Palestine? Free Palestine. Thank now. you so much. Okay. Thank you again. Take care. Bye. You Bye. Too.